It's very common when you see a little baby to ask, who do they look like? Now, obviously, when someone asks that question, they don't mean which cartoon character, which person on the street. They mean mom or dad. Full disclosure, as your pastor, I'm really bad at that. Your baby looks like a baby to me. Even my own children, when they say, oh, he has your eyes, I have no idea what you're talking about. But in general, we understand that there are children that look more like mom or more like dad or after the one they look less like complains, oh, they're a good combination of both of you. This is genetics. It's DNA. Even without the intricate scientific knowledge, we know the basics of this reality. We look like those who have come before us, your mom or your dad. The fact of the matter is that whether they are visible physically, you have traits of both of your biological mom and your biological dad. Again, it's genetics. You may look more like one than the other. You may even, as you grow older, prefer one over the other. But you have DNA from both. Even if you don't even know the one who gave you that DNA. For the Christian, this is true not only in a physical sense with our biological parents, but it is also true in a spiritual sense. We have both the physical as well as spiritual DNA of the first man, Adam, but also the spiritual DNA and one day the physical DNA of Jesus Christ. They are both our predecessors, our parents, if you will. But how does all of that work together? We understand this. We read the scriptures and perhaps passages that are a bit confusing. How does it all work together? And especially, how does that play out in the future in our resurrection body? Well, fortunately for all of us who have asked that question, Paul addresses this in our passage this morning as we continue our study of the believer's glorified, eternal, resurrected body. I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 45 through 49. I understand that for various reasons, for some people it's just easier to listen, but I do encourage you, if and when possible, to have a physical Bible with you and to follow along. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 45 through 49. So also it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Four clarifications this morning. Four clarifications of the Christian's dual, that is two, pedigree. Four clarifications of the Christian's dual pedigree. But before we look at those, let me catch you up to speed. It's been a while since we've gone back to verse 1 by way of review. Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians 15 to the ancient city of Corinth. These are believers. 
He calls them believers. He calls them brethren. And as he does often in 1 Corinthians, he is here addressing something that they misunderstand. In fact, it's not just a minor misunderstanding. They are digging in their heels and they're allowing themselves to be influenced by false heretical teachers in this chapter, chapter 15, specifically about the resurrection. They are believers, and so they believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some were just doubting that they, as Christians, who will one day die, will one day be resurrected in physical form. And so that's where he begins. He starts with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In verses 12 through 13, he says, If Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? That is, dead people. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And what he does there in a negative sense is he connects the resurrection of Jesus Christ with the future bodily resurrection of Christians. In other words, if you're going to say that you're not going to be raised from the dead one day, then Jesus wasn't. And if Jesus was, then you will be too. Then in verse 20, this is all in 1 Corinthians 15, He says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. The first fruits being the first as an example, but also a promise of more to come. The illustration, if you recall, is of the Old Testament. The Israelites would have to give their first fruits of their crop as an offering to the Lord, as a promise from the Lord that there is more to come in their seasonal crops, but also on the part of the worshiper that there's more to come. As the crops come, they will offer more at the temple to the Lord. But we also saw that this means that we will have the same likeness and character in our resurrection bodies as Jesus's resurrection body. That is sinless, eternal, not marred by sin. It won't get sick. It will not die. It has some sort of ability to pass through physical objects. And he goes on then to explain the timeline of these things, including the ultimate victory of Christ over his enemies, the last of which is death itself, because in resurrection to eternal glory, there is no longer any death. Again, we must connect this to the reality of sin, Sin leads to death. If there is no sin, there is no death. In eternity, there is no sin, so there is no death. So having explained all of this, he gets practical. He admonishes the Corinthians to stop sinning and to avoid the false teachers, stating that famous proverb, bad company corrupts good morals, in verse 33. Anticipating more pushback, He goes on to explain what the resurrection body will be like. And he starts with the foundation of God's creative power, that God can do this, God's ability and proof around us that he has created variety, and that he can create or resurrect, renew a body so that it is completely different, though the same individual, just as when you plant a seed it turns into a flower, a bush, a tree that looks completely different than that little dried-out seed. In the same way, our earthly bodies are very different than what will spring forward from them in our resurrection bodies. 
That brings us to verse 45. And again, this morning, we will look at four clarifications of the Christian's dual pedigree. The first is the ancestral character. The ancestral character. He writes, so also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last man, or the last Adam, became a life-giving spirit. By the way, some of you have probably noticed that I'm reading from the New American Standard, but I will often tell you what the NIV and ESV say. That is because those are the three translations that are most used in our congregation. If we had a number of people using the King James, I would tell you what the King James says. Because my, my purpose here is not to emphasize which translation is right, but to shepherd you and to help you learn. And sometimes there's confusion because the wording may be different in your English translations. All that to say, I know that the wording in the NIV and ESV can be very different in this passage, but if you follow along, you'll see that they... Uh, obviously, the meanings are the same. Back to the text. We've seen the language of the Adam-Christ typology earlier in verses 21 and 22, where Paul explains that death came to mankind through Adam and resurrection through Jesus Christ. Now, this imagery is more popularized in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 19, which we don't have time to look at right now. Here in 1 Corinthians, the first created man, Adam, is referred to as the first man, and Jesus is referred to as the last Adam. The first section, in all caps, which is quoted, is from Genesis 2-7, which says, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The ESV and NIV has a word-for-word -word quotation of the phrase living being in 1 Corinthians 15.45. In the NAS, we have living soul. Both are accurate because in the creation of Adam, God formed a physical body, if you will. He compiled some dust, some earth which was then brought to life when he breathed into the nostrils. He breathed to life that mound of dirt by breathing into him a living soul. When God breathed into that formed clump of earth, Adam, the first man, became a living soul. That's all that Paul is saying here, is that Adam received life. He was a living creature, but that's it. That's all he could do. As we saw last week, this physical body that Adam has that was passed down to us is fitting for this life, this earth as we know it. It is fully functional on this planet and suited for earth's existence. However, this body, these bodies that we now have, cannot survive in the new earth. They cannot survive in eternity. Nor, and this is important as we get into the contrast or comparison with Jesus Christ, nor can anyone else give someone the ability to live in eternity. I cannot say in this body, 
This physical body is not suited for eternity, but I can give you the ability to live for eternity. No one can do that. In other words, no one can give another individual a resurrection body, a glorified body, a sinless body, except for Jesus Christ. And just as we ended last week with verse 44, which concludes, if there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So Paul continues this theme with the fact that there's Adam, who is a living soul, which is a natural body. But if there's a natural body in Adam, so there is also a spiritual body in Jesus Christ. Unlike Adam, Christ does not merely exist. He is not merely living He is life-giving. First, let's look at his title here. He's referred to as the last Adam. By his resurrection and glorification, Jesus Christ became the victor over death. We saw that he was the first fruits of resurrection. As such, he has become the last Adam. He has started a new people, a new generation, if you will. He is the final representation of what mankind will be. After him, after our like resurrection bodies, there will be no third type of body. That's it. He's the last Adam. There's nothing else coming in terms of type of body. And just as the first Adam, in representing the natural body, is for this world, so the last Adam in representing and giving the spiritual body is for the next world, for heaven, for the new earth, for eternity. Now, when Paul calls Jesus life-giving, he is not referring to the fact that the second person of the Trinity was involved in original creation, which he was. He is not referring to the fact that he gave us physical life in Adam, and also however many years ago when you were first conceived? That's not what's being referred to here. When you look at the New Testament, the phrase life-giving, or the various derivatives of giving life, is synonymous with Jesus Christ giving spiritual life, new life, regenerated life, raising the spiritually dead to spiritual life, as was exemplified just a moment ago by the three testimonies. He did this ultimately in his salvific work on the cross. And as such, Jesus Christ is the crown of all humanity in that he has the power to give us a new body which we know as the resurrection body. And what you need to understand, believer, is that this life-giving ability does not start at death. It does not start at his second coming. It does not start at your resurrection. It started the day you were regenerated. It started the day you accepted Jesus Christ truly as your Lord and Savior. This that culminates in the resurrection body is already in process. Not the body. You're not physically growing into that resurrection body, but it is called sanctification which starts at justification and ends in that resurrection body in glorification. Because 
the salvation that you now have, the salvation that you hold right now, that exists in you, that characterizes you, is what secures in you as an individual your resurrection body. How do you know if you'll get a resurrection body? If you are saved. Simple way to put it. So, to summarize this point, just as there is a natural body, so there must be a spiritual. So too, if there is a first, there must be a last. And this comparison between the two, Adam and Christ, shows us not only the reality of what we are and what we will one day be, it not only shows us that we have the characteristics of two ancestors, physical in Adam and spiritual in Christ, but it shows us that the natural and the spiritual is only possible because it is bridged by Jesus Christ. All of this points us back to Jesus Christ. Current salvation, resurrection body, all of it points us to the past and present work and promises of the Lord Jesus Christ. Without Him, you would not be saved. You would not have a promised resurrection body. Without Him, you would not die one day and have a resurrection body. It is all secured and processed by Jesus Christ. In other words, Christ is not merely the giver of the resurrection body. He is necessary for the resurrection body to be a reality. So much so that He comes back to make this all happen. He comes back to make this all happen. Turn to the Gospels, John chapter 14, verses 2 through 3. I wonder what the disciples were thinking because they didn't even understand that He had to die, let alone this. I'm sure they got the promise, but they didn't understand fully what He was saying. John chapter 14 Verses 2 and 3, this great passage that we like to think about because of the wonders of its reality. And he says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And we think about that, right? We've quoted that. There's Sunday school songs about that. And we think about Jesus resurrecting, then ascending. He's prepared a place for us in heaven. There's a mansion in glory, we like to say. And he is waiting for us to go and join him there. Now, look at verse 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He's coming to get us. He's coming back to get us. Because in Jesus Christ, it is not just theoretically possible, it is physically possible. And in reality, realistically, He will come and make it so. And in order to have one, you must have the other. And this leads us to our second clarification of the Christian's dual pedigree, the accepted chronology. You must have a natural body in order to one day have a spiritual body. 
The accepted chronology is in verse 46 where he says, However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this point. It's very simple. This is the natural law of growth. There is always a logical and accepted sequence or chronology of things in regards to believers. It's natural first, then spiritual. You are born with a natural physical body, and then you are saved. And so this starts with the chronology of salvation. You cannot be saved if you were never physically born. You can't be born again if you weren't born the first time. And so you are born first out of your mother's womb, then sometime down the road you are saved, natural, then spiritual. And to Paul's point in our passage, this same sequence is followed in regard to our bodies, natural body first on this earth, then the spiritual or resurrected body. And at this point, Paul is talking about us, not Adam, not Jesus Christ. Connecting this to verse 45, our natural bodies belong to the soul, our spiritual bodies belong to the spirit. Even Christ followed this pattern. In his coming, he was born a natural body first, then was given his resurrected body. And all of this happens at the return of Christ. Eschatology, end times stuff. Again, this is a body especially suited for eternal life. Let's move on. That's the order. That's the chronology. Let's move to our third clarification of the Christian's dual pedigree, the associated compositions. The associated compositions. In verse 47, it says, The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. Again, in Genesis 2-7, which I read for you earlier, tells us that Adam, the first man, was made by God out of the dust from the ground. Dust, incidentally, that God had previously made. And this is what Paul is referring to when he says that Adam is from the earth, earthy. ESV and NIV say man of dust, which is more literal. But Paul's point here is not merely the composition of man or where he came from. He is emphasizing the mortality of man because of his earthly origin. He is from dust. He is earthy. You will one day die. It connects us to that common phrase that we often hear in, at funerals, dust to dust. Created from dust, so naturally will return to dust, which comes from Genesis 3.19. Let me read that for you. He tells Adam, by the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. The powerful book, Ecclesiastes, in chapter 3 and verse 20, it says this All go to the same place, all came from the dust, and all return to the dust. You understand this in a physical sense. Adam was created from dust. One day your physical body will die, should the Lord tarry in the rapture, and your body will disintegrate into dust. So although it is true that sovereign creative power is seen in this picture, what is being taught in this verse is the fleeting and temporal nature of the human body. This earthy, transitory body 
contrast with the body from heaven, and this is Christ's risen body. His body is grounded in the reality of our future, the reality of eternity in the new creation. And so heaven, in this verse, is referring not so much to a place, but as a realm, the realm that is characterized by God's presence and holiness. And in this state, Jesus sets the pattern for all believers who will one day be resurrected and be given a glorified spiritual but physical body for our eternal existence. Turn ahead a few books to Philippians chapter 3. This is a passage that we'll return to, we will return to often in the remaining study in 1 Corinthians 15 because it is talking about what we're talking about here, that is the resurrection body. Philippians 3, chapter, excuse me, chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. He says, For our citizenship is in heaven. Okay, there's a whole sermon right there. You understand this point. From which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here it is, verse 21. Who will transform the body of our humble state, that is our earthly dying bodies, into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Remember that subject all things to himself we saw early in 1 Corinthians 15 in which he will subject all things. He will destroy all his enemies, including death. So that was connected to what will happen in the end times in association with the giving of our resurrection bodies. It emphasizes his power, his victory, the fact that those resurrection bodies will indeed be eternal. There will be no mistakes no sin will creep in. No serpent is there to deceive us. No deception is even possible. And this then transitions us to verses 48 and 49. Because verse 47 is not talking about the origin of these two bodies, Adam and Christ, but of our association with them. So it transitions us to verses 48 and 49. And our fourth point, the anticipated consummation. We have seen so far three of our clarifications of the dual pedigree of the, or of the Christian's dual pedigree. We've seen our ancestral character as we've connected to Adam physically, sinfully, and Jesus Christ spiritually. The accepted chronology, natural, then spiritual. The associated compositions of what we have in Adam and who we are and will be in Jesus Christ. And finally, ver uh, point four, the anticipated consummation. Let's start with verse 48. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. As is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. In other words, just as Adam is earthy, so we humans are also earthy. And just as Christ is heavenly, so also are those who are in him heavenly. Not all those who are earthy are heavenly, but all those who are heavenly are earthy. I confuse you there? All humans are earthy, but not all humans are saved. Only those who are saved are heavenly. As human beings, we all share. All of us, believe it or not, we share an ancestry to Adam. Even those who 
claim science as their God. Well, they don't claim that, but you know that's true. Who are avowed atheists cannot deny the truth that they have found a common thread strand of DNA that connects all of us. So the world says, wow. And the Christians say, duh. This is most clearly seen in our physical bodies, from the presence of a physical head to the tips of our toes. We're not all the, all the same. We are born with handicaps. We uh, uh, have handicaps from various surgeries or accidents. But the reality is, ten fingers, ten toes, two eyes, a brain, two ears, a nose, right? We sh we're all the same. We share the image of the first man, and because of that, we share the same commonality in our basic human features with everyone that comes from Adam, which is everyone. Less physically obvious, but just as glaringly obvious, is the sin nature that we have from Adam. For the believer, that all changed when we confessed Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and our sins were forgiven, we became a new creation. At that moment, instantly, not a process, nothing you did, not later on in sanctification, but at that moment of justification, you entered the family of the heavenly. Possessing a reality and quality of life that contrasts with the earthy. For now you are still earthy, but you are also heavenly. And you have a taste of what that perfection in heaven will be like. A taste, I say, because although saved, you still live in a world of sin and death and darkness. While being, de while being declared righteous in the eyes of God and living for Him, the practical holiness through obedience and worship that we pursue is hindered by sin, our own sin. But a day is coming when we will have the full realization of our heavenly body the full realization of our heavenly character. What is now a quality of life that contrasts the earthly will one day be transformed in the resurrection so that we will be fully like Him both bodily and morally. That is perfect. Not perfect in Hollywood standard, not perfect in the eyes of a model. Perfect. In the eyes of God, sinless, in other words. Not just nuances of holiness, but holiness, pure and undefiled. Not just daily battling and striving for excellence as we do today, but realizing excellence. Not just putting off sin and putting on righteousness day after day, but simply being righteousness. Our union with Christ will be fully realized. Then verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Paul now moves on to illustrate this bodily change with clothing. 
The word born means to wear and was used in ancient writings of wearing clothing. We have examples in ancient writings of this word being used of putting on a breastplate or even a badge. And what we are wearing, according to Paul, is the image of the earthy. Image means there is a prototype from which our image is drawn. And of course, this is Adam. In other words, we are still destined for death, like Adam. We are still fragile. We are still sinful. We are still vulnerable. We are fallible. One day we will also bear the image of the heavenly. In these bodies... We are marching towards death. This is true. But as our days progress, as time continues, we march closer and closer to our future bearing of the image of Jesus Christ fully and perfectly. Specifically, the image of His glory in His resurrection body. He's already there. We are coming. We're headed there. He's coming to get us. Coming to one day attain the same form and essence of Jesus Christ. So not only will we change our bodies from mortal to immortal, sinful to sinless, but we will exchange Adam's image for the image of Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 29 through 30 gives us that wonderful progression of salvation, that unbreakable chain that once started by God cannot be stopped. Once justified, you will be glorified. Romans 8, 29 through 30 says, For those whom he foreknew, speaking of God the Father, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren, and these whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those, these whom he justified, he also glorified. That's resurrection bodies right there. This is all within the process of sanctification, which began at justification and will culminate at glorification. This is a promise from God. And you, Christian, are given that promise. And you are currently in process. And if you are a true Christian, no matter how much you may doubt your salvation, no matter how much you may struggle, no matter how much you may realistically say Christians aren't supposed to do what I just did, if the process has started, it cannot stop. Because just as with the beginning of the process justification, it has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with your parents. It has nothing to do with Traffic, your job, your finances, your physical abilities, your physical looks. It has everything to do with God. So you cannot tell me that God started a good work in you, but you can end it. Or peer pressure can stop it. Or changes in societal norms can make you lose it. It is not like a speeding train because a train can be stopped and derailed. There is no illustration, no analogy that fits this except itself. You are saved, you will always be saved, and you will be glorified. But in Romans 8, 
after giving this simple, concise, yet deeply theological explanation of salvation from beginning to end. He says in the next verse, What then shall we say to these things? Keep in mind the unbreakable process of salvation. If God is for us, who is against us? You're thinking there's a lot of people against us. Jesus said so ourselves. If the world hated him, he'll hate us. That's not what it's saying here. It's saying if God is for you, who in the world can do anything else? Who in the world can hurt you? Who in the world can do anything? Even Jesus Christ. In talking about the fear of man as he sent out his disciples to evangelism. He says, don't fear those who can kill the body. Don't even be afraid of those who can kill you. Yes, physically, emotionally, people can harm you. But all they can do at their worst is kill you. And what is that? Ushering you into the presence of God? I mean, talk about the biggest burn on whoever hates you. All they can do is drive you closer to the one you want to be closer to anyway, even in physical harm and death. How many of you have gone through trials, physical or emotional, familial? You say, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. And you look back and man, that, that trial was where I grew. That is where I really... You just heard it this morning from the testimonies. That's what God used to grow me as a believer or draw me to become a believer. We will one day bear the image of Christ, but not yet. Not yet. Until that day, we must remain faithful with the hope of a resurrection body keeping us going. Because the promise of resurrection body, 1 Corinthians 15, is tied to the protecting and sustaining hand of God, Romans chapter 8. It can be hard. Life is hard. Physically, yes, but also emotionally, also spiritually. But no matter what happens, you remember that God is for you. And nobody who is against you can do anything to divert his plan or subvert his sovereignty. So remember this truth while your body is an atom so that you can be faithful until your body is in Christ. He will finish what he has started. Four clarifications of the Christian's dual pedigree. The ancestral character, the accepted chronology, the associated compositions, and the anticipated consummation. The three cutest, handsomest boys I have ever met in my life also happen to live in my house. They're cute. I'm biased. But you've all told me they're cute too, so I guess that's fair. And I'll be honest with you. When anyone says, oh, this one looks totally like your wife, 
I said, yeah, but... But you know what should bother us more? When we look at our lives and we evaluate ourselves through Scripture, say, eh, he's handsome, she's pretty, but you know, she resembles Adam more than Christ. That should bother you. Inevitable to a certain degree because we are in Adam until that resurrection body. But we are heavenly and not merely earthy. We have Jesus Christ. We are in Christ. And when it comes to spiritual DNA, as we look forward towards that resurrection body, today we need to be faithful in these finite bodies and do everything we can so that we resemble one parent, Jesus Christ, more than the other, Adam. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we also bear the image of the heavenly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your kindness to us. That does not end with death, but death is in so many ways just the beginning. That we can be with you and be like you so that we can be with you for eternity. We look forward to that day, but guard us from slacking off this day. Help us to embrace the reality of your plan that we are in these finite bodies, that we are earthy like Adam, but because of your salvation and grace and empowering spirit, may we live more like the heavenly. Help us to repent. Help us to hate our sin and to embrace and love obedience and experience the joy of it. Use us to that end for your glory, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.